They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. Bye-bye, bye-bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave. Bye-bye, 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 bye-bye. Hey! I'm all right, David Hellard. How are you? Well, how are you? So, uh, welcome to the podcast. But I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Jody at the moment, and you keep on moving around. Is, is, are you, have you got it on a wobble board, your laptop? No, no, you're my, you're my lap. <laughs> my lap. Okay. Normally, I have to. So, um, in case you didn't realise, so sometimes most of the most of the episodes that we record, uh, we do at home. But then sometimes when we have um, a load of interviews, um, I have to like duck out during work time in order to uh, uh, in order to record these. Um, but uh, at the moment, all the uh, all the, all the meeting rooms are used up. Um, but, You're in a but, toilet. But, no, no, I'm not in the toilet, no. Well, the reason you up for, for actual business rather than recording a podcast. And so, you know, they, they kind of get priority unusually. So, uh, so I'm just stuck upstairs. Look, it's a beautiful, beautiful view here at the top of the... Uh... It's nice. Lovely yeah, exactly. Brighton, I assume. Yes, it is. Fantastic. Well, welcome to the podcast, listeners. We, we're expecting to have quite a few new listeners to, to normal weeks because of the, the caliber of the guests. Well, we always have amazing well, guests. We, we, we always like to think that it's because of our popularity and, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, the, uh, the words getting around about you know, how good we are at presenting and how funny we are. But I, I've got a, a, a sneaking suspicion that people aren't listening to this for us. Yeah, which, well, maybe you're come for lads. Stay for the love of lads. <laughs> is that going to be the motto of this? Come for lads, stay for love. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But we're, um, if, you, if you haven't heard of us before, we're Bad Boy Running, based in the UK. And we are a couple of buddies who, unlike most running podcasts you've probably listened to, uh, we don't really have any good tech. We don't have any time to research our guests. We don't have any budget. <laughs> And yeah, we somehow put out an episode a week. We're not based in big studios. We've got an editor, actually, Nick, who's amazing. Um, and he's based in a place with no internet, which doesn't help. It's somewhere in France. So if, this, if the sound quality on this is good, don't get used to it. Um, <laughs> we, that's almost, the, do you know, those provisos before a film, we're hoping to lower expectations. So hopefully you'll be like, ah, actually, it was all right. No, absolutely. When I when I worked in like film and stuff like that, they used to do that. But they they used to ply you with alcohol. You knew the size of the the drinks reception before a film implied just how bad it was going to be. So I think we we have to we have to work especially well, hard with us. That's not a good sign. So if you if you listened before, you know that we we partner with Beer Fifty Two. So that kind of suggests that we <laughs> yeah, drink, drink along with us. That's what we <laughs> that's what we suggest. But come on, let's get on a second bottle. Let's get on a second bottle before we get to this interview. In, in which case, we need to be sponsored by methylated spirits. <laughs> Something similar. Drink Just, along with us. You're, you have a what? Sponsored by Mestos. magic mushrooms. <laughs> But um, we've got we've got the lads interview coming up. We're not actually sure how many episodes this is going to be because I mean, he he's someone who I've seen on on the documentaries. I've listened to a little bit in the podcast, but I didn't realise just quite how eloquent he is. No, no, and the thing is, he's characterised. A lot of people characterise him as um, uh, you know, as like 
you know, mad as like a box of frogs or something. But he, he doesn't come across like that at all. Yeah. It doesn't come across that at all. I, I, it was one, it's, it'd been one of the most surprising interviews. And just the amount of time we had with him as well was <laughs> insane. So but to, to set the scene, basically, his, uh, his partner is the, the tech guru. Um, I think uh, Barbara, wasn't it? Barbara, yeah. Oh, I think yeah. so. And so Barbara set yeah. him up on Skype and then quickly said goodbye. She's heading into town. And so I'm not sure whether Laz is being lovely with us and generous with his time or whether he just didn't know enough about how to stop, <laughs> how to stop Skype and how to start the interview. And so he was like trapped in this conversation. Yeah, that, we get held hostage. That's, how, that's always yeah. how the best interviews. Yeah, we, all of our questions, we never breathed in. We just kept on rolling. And when I stopped, Jodie then went over and there's just no pause. Just we, should, in. We, should, we should have done good cop, bad cop in, in true in, interrogation style. <laughs> I think it was a little bit over the top where we asked Barbara to shine a bright light in his face during the interview as well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, we, we get people who are fascinating from the world of running, obstacle racing, adventures, challenges, sometimes a little bit random, like a love episode. We might be doing an episode of Beer 52 because for some reason they decided to go to North Korea to to get their breweries um, well, spending well, in beer. Well known for their craft beer is North well Korea. Known. Yeah, no food, but craft beer. Although, I mean, it, it would be quite a good distraction piece, wouldn't it? If they brought out one really good craft beer from there, at the moment, what do you think about North Korea? You think, um, obviously, the Kims, the haircut. Um, you, you think, think the haircuts? think about the cheerleaders. Yes. I, I don't think about, yeah, I don't think about human rights issues or anything else like that. I think about the haircuts. <laughs> <laughs> then you think about... They always have yeah, bad I'll, haircuts, don't they, dictators? Like, yeah. What about Gaddafi? I think he had flowing locks. Yeah, he had some shocking plastic surgery. That's true, actually. It they was are shocking. Basically. Well, in fact, is that, is that how you know someone's a dictator? It's probably the oppression of their country for 40-odd years. I think that's probably the clue, not the haircut. Because to be a dictator means that you've got the power that whatever your haircut is, people will the like it. It's the Yeah, absolutely. So therefore... Yeah, so, so that's a sign. I'm trying to think what... Oh, no, Trump's haircut. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's the main benefit of being a dictator, is that you get to set hair fashion sense. I mean, it would save time in the morning, wouldn't it? It would save time. <laughs> but, um, yeah, if Korea could come out of a really... North Korea could come out of a really strong craft beer, I think hipsters would be torn. Hipsters are there with their morals, but then a good craft ale... Oh, you could win some people round. Yeah, because you call it something like the people's the people's craft ale or something like that. Something you know, something Stalinist. It would be. Yeah, yeah I can even see it now. It all be looking like industrial and you know severe and PPA, something like that. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, how are you? How are things? How's are you back running? Are you injury injury free? Have you escaped the lurgy of your I, kids? I don't. I don't want to jinx it. But I have, I feel all right, and I have been for a run, and it it feels wonderful. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, that's how long has that taken? That's just it's like almost been like two months or something now. It's insane. Well, I'm going to tell you about my. Um, I'm going to pretend that it's now a month ago because I don't know how we <laughs> haven't had 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 time to catch up on this yet. But um, it's a story that 
to be told. So as, as some of the do-badders know, um, I went out to the World Snow Shoeing Championships week <laughs> after New Year. <laughs> Is this... Just remind me, was this the first running of it, or was this the first time Britain was represented at it? It's the first time there's been a British delegation. Right, OK. So individuals have gone there, but there's not been a... Because you said that you had to, you had to do something in order to, qualify, to become the British team, as it were. No, not at all. That was a good thing. So there's a, a guy called Will Griffiths from my club who was interning with them last year and so he ran as Brit- as britain but he was in the under 21s i think or the the youth games as such so i'm not sure if anyone's run in the adult version before as britain but normally for things like the world championships of any sport you need to qualify um which if you're an obstacle racer means you just got to turn up for a race and be 35 come top 10 out of three but um for for the snowshoeing, because there was no one, there's no delegate, there's no association in the UK. We got to pretend we're the association. I mean, maybe we are. <laughs> I, I don't know. So, um, so we took about 20 of us out there, all representing Team UK, even though at least three of them were Americans. Um, and I think we even had a, a French person as well. But I insisted that we were all dressing uniformly in Team UK uh, official kit as such. Um, but we got there, and it was warmer than when I left London. Was it? Yeah. What? We, so we, we drove to North Italy, and there was no snow. It was bizarre. We... We got out and there was a bit of snow in, in Innsbruck where we flew into in Austria, drove over the mountains. And then we, when we arrived, you could see in the distance this almost single track of, of packed ice. It would look quite weird. And we suddenly realized that that was the track they'd had to build. I don't know how, <laughs> because there was no snow in, in this, this area, like this valley of northern Italy for the Snowshoeing World Champs. <laughs> Which is that's insane. But I guess I guess that can it's more likely to happen now with you know climate change and but the so there was an event there called something like the Cas the Caspada that is a local event. <laughs> is that the correct pronunciation? It feels like it feels like you you were winging that one. It definitely starts with Cas. Casper. Yeah. So they they've been going for. 36 years and it's the biggest snowing shoe, snowshoeing event in the world but it's quite a local affair and the snowshoeing world champs have been rotating around existing races because they're not really a big enough organisation to you know, create their own one um, it just makes more sense to use whatever logistics already set up so they were piggybacking on this and they said it's actually happened a few times before but um, unfortunately because it was the week of New Year and New Year's Eve we went out there absolutely ruined just on death's, um, death's door because we'd had Christmas straight into the weekend, straight into New Year, probably eight or nine days out of ten really going hard, um, you know, staying up till four, trying to get some runs in. So, um, yeah, we get out there and we're already just on the, you know, when you're on the edge of illness, which, well, imagine your last two months, basically. Yeah. So you'll turn up like we're, we're struggling to try and get Eddie sleep where we can, just to try and recover. But the, the night before the race, they actually had an opening ceremony, which is for me 
was part of the draw because I, I just wanted to be involved in something where we could parade round as, as Team GB. Now, we dressed up in the, the most garish. It's, it's almost as if a GB rainbow had puked up glitter on us. So we had um, American-style cowboy hats, which were with the England flag on. Then... <laughs> American side cowboy hats with the English flag. <laughs> so the, you know the I can't remember what cowboy hat. Is it just Stetson, cowboy hats? Stetsons. Stetsons. We had felt Stetsons with the England cross on. We had blue sequined or red sequins jackets with just sequins. Union Jack tie. Um, had a lovely crushed red velvet, and then um, shirt, and then Union Jack leggings, and so. Do you imagine everyone else there is from the local town who's just turned up to go and see this town event? Then you've got some of the other racers who are all in just casual wear. And then you've got 20 Brits who are the most garish Eurovision-style contest-looking group. They've never had a British team before. And so everyone's like, what the hell is this? Um, loved it. Welcomed us in. And then the ceremony happened, which is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Why? So you know when I, you know when you you flick a channel and you or you go abroad and you suddenly watch someone else's television, and it could be a normal program, but because it's in a foreign language, it just seems a lot more entertaining to you and a lot sillier than it is. Um, I don't know if it's because the way talent on TV's brought us brought us up thinking of weird Japanese shows is just <laughs> ludicrous and hilarious, but th- there's almost a live version of that unfolding. So it was all in Italian um, and very little of it was explained and not even explained in Italian. So it started up with this, this solo hornist who every time he got to the end of his page had to stop, turn the page of his music and then carry on. He's thinking, come on, someone could have just, surely someone could just help him with that. They then brought on these, um, these children who were dressed as... Um, they look like, what are the British dancers called with the bells? And Morris the dancers. Morris dancers. Look, all look like Morris dancers. So they started dancing away, which is quite fun. And uh, we were quite into that. They then um, brought on this, looked like a, a solemn wedding party that then stood staring at the crowds. And none of them smiled. And they didn't, they didn't really talk about what was going on either. So no one in the crowd was really aware of of what the significance was. Then three people dressed as devils came in, followed by a crocodile who then walked around the crowd and just started freaking out the kids with no explanation whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> we were there just finding this delightful. They then, um, they, 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 this solo voice starts singing and then they start playing music. So we try and clap along for the whole of this ceremony, and everyone's refusing to actually join in and clap. So we've just got the <laughs> British delegation clapping, trying to get as much enthusiasm. Why, why, why is everyone refusing? Well, because they're just taking it seriously. I don't know, if, but this was a kind, kind of Jolly Benny Hill-style music going on. So we thought, hey, this is great fun. But just no one seemed to be up for any kind of enthusiasm for anything. Um, and obviously we... We'd had a couple of drinks. We were full of enthusiasm for just anything we could, we could get our hands on. So we then had to walk around the town. Met, the locals are cheering you, parading behind this young child waving the England flag, the, the Union Jack. Amazing, amazing. 
So then comes the, the morning of the race, and um, I've been ill trying to sleep the night before. The rest of our team have been in the bar. We head down thinking this is not good. this is going to be quite a relaxed event. Actually, it just seems quite low key. And then we suddenly saw the German team side by side running along the road in perfect unison, warming up. <laughs> it's like a scene from Cool Runnings where you suddenly think, "Oh, oh they see the Swiss." Yeah, they're like, "Oh, oh." <laughs> yeah, we suddenly realised, "Oh boy, you're out of our depth." So I've been. You remember from the last part? They were actually running in like unison. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, really mind games mind games they're like just we go around the corner all just run together and it worked it absolutely worked we were completely uh, freaked out and and a little bit of me was thinking how good can these snowshoers be like i you know. <laughs> how good can this thing that i've never done before <laughs> how good can they really be i have zero knowledge about this zero experience <laughs> so i'm assuming that it's a bit of a joke well, do you know when when you, when I attend an event, typically, say I, if I enter a race, you often look around, you, you see how many numbers there are, like numbers of people, and you see what people look like, and you think, yeah, I reckon I should be, I, I reckon I'd be in this kind of position. <laughs> so I was looking around there thinking, well, you never know, you never know. Um, so I, I, I had these amazing shoes, though, was it TSL? reflex lightest shoes you could possibly have i tried them on a little bit in the local park just to see how they were they seemed all right <laughs> Do you have a lot of ice in your local park <laughs> <laughs> well the, the good thing is you can wear them you can you can wear them on grass but there was there was it was it was probably three wide tracks you couldn't even warm up on ice you were running on the grass anyway and then as i started running in these again they fell off which freaked me out so i then put them on as tight as I could. And I realized that to my idea that I thought was going to change the world of snowshoeing was I'd wear my running spikes without the spikes in, which are the lightest possible shoe you could have. So I thought if I have those inside my snowshoe, I'm going to be so light compared to every other runner. I'm going to be unstoppable. So these, these kept on coming out. I was like, God damn it. Um, I'm never going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to run in these. So I then had a mile and a half run back to the flat to try and pick up my trail shoes that I'd, for some reason, forgotten to pick up. Given the time, I had about 20-something minutes. I'm like, basically, I'm in the race already because if I didn't get there quick enough, I'm going to miss the start. So I then do a 5K um, run all the way back, pick up my shoes, all the way back again, it's relatively hilly where I was running, so I was pretty knackered by the time I get there. I come down the hill, and the race has already started. I'm like, God damn it, God damn it. <laughs> now thinking, I need, I've got to write an article about this, so I actually need to take part. Put my trail shoes sorry, on. Sorry, what have you got to write an article about it? So I've, I've been writing for an outdoor fitness magazine. Oh, okay. So um, <laughs> we can get away with being a bit unprofessional on the podcast, but Vicky, you can't really turn up to a race and then just not race it because you haven't, figured out your shoes in advance properly um that's well that's what i, that's what I thought. <laughs> you, you say that the amount of races i turned up for having forgotten like my num- race numbers and stuff like that and at the last minute going I, I i'm covering this race i really do need a race number in three minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't worry, i'm not gonna win it anyway I can no, i'm not gonna win it don't worry yeah yeah <laughs> as i put my trail shoes on and was desperately trying to put them on and i suddenly realized that actually it wasn't the shoe that was the issue. It was the fact that the positioning of the back of my snowshoe 
was wrong. And I actually needed this Allen key to move it forward so I could then position it without my foot coming out. So I was then running around trying to speak to all these Italians about a Allen key. <laughs> They've got no idea what I'm on about. This lovely, um, lovely policeman then goes, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Takes you to his car. It turns out I've got an Allen key that is the wrong shape. It's a starred Allen key that only exists for these shoes that I've left in my flat again. <laughs> They're thinking, can I do another 5K run to get back, to then join in maybe one lap down? It's only a 7K race, the world to know shoe champs. So I thought, well, I, I guess I'm just going to have to watch and somehow either lie or just make up <laughs> another angle for the article. But after the, so I then cheer through all of the, all of the, the, the runners and they're on, there's two laps and you run into town. Actually, the guys at the front are absolutely hooning it. Just unbelievable pace. Really, really good snowshoers, um, which I, I didn't really understand what that was, but you could see from seeing our lot run. <laughs> their lot run like, wow, you need okay. a contrast. It's a yeah. contrast. Yeah, absolutely. So after that, they then had the, the main event of the La Caspiat or whatever it's called, where it's one lap with 3,000 people or so. So they all start, and I suddenly notice that some of them are doing it in trail shoes. So I thought, oh, it must be all right, as long as you're not in the world champs, to do it in trail shoes. So I thought, sod it. Um, picked up my snowshoes and then just started legging it down the course. Thank God the, the snowshoes were um, the lightest in the world. I'm just dropping that into TSL. Sorry, guys, I've just absolutely let you down with <laughs> being the worst <laughs> They sent me these, they didn't know who it was. They sent them out like, yeah, it's going to be great brand positioning. Like, oh, my, oh, no. <laughs> this is, yeah, this does well for our uh, trying to attract brands to work with us. Yeah, we don't have many sponsors, and there's a reason why. Yeah, um, but so I then ran on this course in trail shoes, which... Holding, actually, so holding the snowshoes. Holding the snowshoes. <laughs> dressed, um, dressed like an idiot with my Union Jack... Um, leggings on which i've never run in leggings before properly uh, and they really do chafe um but yeah i'm it they was it was so much quicker than the people around me so i then uh passed all the the second lap team gb people who um, were dressed fully in secret stuff as well uh, having a great time um ended up catching up with a guy at the front of the the one lap casper whatever it's called um and I wasn't really sure what to do because I, I still wasn't, I, I thought, am I legit? I don't know. Um, am I now in this race? Because there was a time, chi- well, I thought there was a time chip at the beginning. <laughs> like, am I racing this guy? And, what do you mean? I thought I, there was a time chip. Well, well I wasn't sure there's was a mat at the start. And <laughs> there's one with this, this, this young child who was about... 16, 15, 16. And in my head, basically, looking at him, I was like, I know what's happening here. He, he's the only one really trying because he's like the young guy and no, everyone else is just enjoying himself. Like, do I, do I try and, do I run past this guy or not? And there's a, a weird tractor thing ahead of him that's almost smoothing down the ice. Yeah. So I then think, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to go and just run hard anyway because I need to for my training. So I overtake him and the tractor then pushes me off like drives me off the course i don't know if it's intentional or whether they were like this guy should not be running with snowshoes so i think it forced off the course run around him catch up with briggsy who is um 
running hard. Um, but at this stage, I'm like, sod it. I'm winning the Caspiasta, whatever it's called. <laughs> I'm running the race I can't pronounce. So I was like, Briggy, I'm, I'm going to run it in. You don't mind? I chatted to him a bit. You don't mind there's a guy coming up behind me. You don't mind if I run this in, do you? She's like, um, all right, all right. Um, so run in and finish. But what I hadn't realized, they hadn't actually chipped the first lap. So it ended up that I was, I, I finished officially in the world championships, having only done one lap and not running snowshoes. But I, I don't know whether I should confess or not. The, I, I didn't come in first Brit, Sally. There was another guy, another journalist who'd run it hard. But Briggsy's annoyed that I came in second Brit officially and she'd have been third Brit. So, oh, uh, you knocked off the podium. Yeah, although she's, she's now British champion, I guess. If, can you claim that? Claim whatever you can. <laughs> yeah, cl- so, English um, champion. Uh, yeah, whatever. Under thirties female. Under, yeah, yeah exactly. they claim all of them. <laughs> but it was it was just such a great event. And then that night, so you you were then in this square with uh, chips, beer, and then it went on to a Oktoberfest of a thousand people in this local village. So in terms of races, it costs about 35 euros to enter. Anyone can enter the World Champs. It was just such an amazing event. So unfortunately, next year it's in Japan. But I think next time it comes back to Europe, we should take a massive do a delegation of like 50, 60 people all sequined up again um, because the locals were absolutely loving it. They thought is what happened every world championships because <laughs> first time the world champs had come um but it was it just so fun to be somewhere normally i you know enter race to try and do well you know to try and even get a good time or good finishing place but this is just so great to be so bad at something but in such a distinctive way that people are like you have to come next year oh my and people were taking photos with us like their kids were coming up they were they really thought it was a big deal for some reason <laughs> that's amazing so i saw loads of photos of people standing on the podium like i think you know pork pie was stood like on the podium <laughs> and stuff like that was, was that all rubbish like was there i mean the chances are pork pie was first British 35 to 40 maybe <laughs> <laughs> but actually the, the brilliant thing is so if you uh, if you ha- if you don't know who Port Pie is do betters he's um, he's a hasher who is the type of man you love to hate he's uh, he's a bit like a a Boris Johnson-esque figure yeah who is is quite pompous but hilarious and fun his uh, he his girlfriend said i think you've got my number and he's like oh it doesn't matter we're just we're just racing you know we don't have we're not racing hard we're just having fun but it turned out that for some reason they decided after she'd finished that was the cutoff time even though there were about eight bits behind her and so officially pork pie was last in the world Which he had no idea about until the results came out and they realised he had had the wrong number and uh, she'd come last. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, so it's going to be in Japan next year. It it rotates around the world, but it it seems like it's such an intimate race that I'd imagine anyone can enter. And if your country isn't represented, just say you're a different country. I don't think they'll mind. Say you're Team GB. We need you. We're not going to travel to Japan. 
But yeah, I'll let you know when it comes to Europe again, because there can only be about four or five countries it can be in. And given that it was in Italy with no snow, maybe it'll come to England. Yeah, we can have it. <laughs> Love that. It'll be in Dubai or something next, won't it? Yeah, it's just <laughs> it's the kind of insane stuff that they do. Yeah, they'll put it where the World Cup is in Qatar. Yeah. Ninety degree heat. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, okay. So it's like a contender for a, like a beer lover style on mass uh, on mass event. Yeah, and it's made me realise actually that weird and wonderful is 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 actually in in many ways what people should seek because it guarantees you fun and adventure no matter how well you perform. Yeah, it's pre- it's pretty good going along to something that you've not done. I mean, that's it. How many times do you get that kind of variety? Like, you know, you can go to races, you could do ultra and stuff like that, that have like varied terrain or they have different conditions and things like that. But you go to something where you need a completely different skill set. That it's just like, you you feel like a total beginner. You're like, this is, this is insane. Like, I don't know how to do this at all. Um, They even had Gluvine on the aid stations. Oh, and glue nice. vine when you finished. I mean, it, and biscuits and stuff. It was, it was for a seven k race. They had aid stations. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love it. I, the thing is, I really love it when they um, like when the locals love it as well. Yeah, and they yeah. like really throw it in. It's, again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bitch about the Paris Marathon, but I am <laughs> gonna say that that is like the antithesis of what I think it should be. Um, which I might have, I think I just had a bad year because other people's experience is different. But you know, and and it feels as though it's from where it is as well that it doesn't oh, yeah. feel I mean, like that's just, just experience, isn't it? They get to France for the war. No, 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 you don't. But you know, that's the thing. Fundamentally, you want to uh, you want to experience what it's like. Yeah, you, ha- you want that sense of place, don't you? Yeah. That's the thing, yeah. and uh, actually, I think in a in a, uh, in a later episode, we're going to talk about the uh, the national running show where you, it, your talk talked about that as well, which was yeah. uh, which was very good. Um, but from um, I mean, from one see, cult like I mean, this is perfect entry. So it is a perfect a perfect seg. Yeah, this is, it's not normally this perfect listener. If you've not listened to it before, this 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 wasn't planned in this way. But uh, but yeah, from one. Um, opportunity to seek adventure and do something different to the man that makes it possible. So, Dubaris, this is the interview we've been wanting to have for about three years. Um, unbelievably exciting. The number of questions you've all sent in um, is unprecedented, really. But if you haven't watched the Barclay Marathon's documentary on Netflix yet, Go and watch it because we, there's a lot of assumed knowledge about about Laz, about the race, about elements of it, and we're not going to get we're not going to just retrace a lot of questions that are already on the internet that you can find out about the documentary. If you don't know approximately what it is, basically um, Laz, inspired by the escape of um, J. L. Jones from the Star Wars set back in the 80s, created a race that became the hardest race of all time. So um, that is where we are now. And um, he's been kind enough to come and speak to us on the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Lazarus Lake. Hey! How are you doing? Hey. I am doing good. I'm, I made it here in time. 
I uh, got my errands run, got in a few miles this morning. Lovely weather. When we were emailing, you were you were actually saying that part of the potential issue with um, with scheduling in the interview in January was that you were going to be out actually scoping the course for for this year's Barclays. So are you, I mean, firstly, I know you've been injured. How are you, how are you feeling with that? And also, how's the planning going? The planning is going well. I work on it pretty much every day and gradually knocking stuff out. We've, we've ordered the, the shirts for this year and got a really nice shirt design. Our theme this year is nothing out there but love and puppies. <laughs> is, is, that, is that slightly facetious? We have <laughs> no, we're thinking that by easing up on the entry form, and the theme that more runners will finish because it'll there thereby be an easier course. I don't quite understand that. So, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see what the runners do. We'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm thinking a positive attitude. That's really key. <laughs> in the past must have had a negative attitude that's all it is it's easy if you just stay positive <laughs> and puppies help you with that <laughs> loving puppies so i mean taking it because I've, I've read quite a few interviews um anyway but especially building up to this one about your background and you've obviously just finished walking across the state your background is in ultra running um and you're seen as almost one of the godfathers of, of ultra running in the States. But when when did you really, when did running take over your life? And when did you start actually doing these big ultras yourself? Oh, I, I started running in high school and ran track and cross country and uh, all that stuff. I was a very mediocre athlete. And uh, after school, uh, I, I continued to run and ran road races, and it was, was very small then. I know that I had been running for like 12 years the first time I ever saw another person running. And he was, I, saw, I saw a guy cross the road a number of blocks in front of me, and I thought, he's running. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I ran really fast to catch up with him and uh, managed to make the corners fast enough to see where he was going and, and ran him down. His name was Arnold Winger. And he said, oh, yeah, running is exploding. It's huge now. I said, we even have a club. This was in Memphis with a population of about a million people. So I joined the Memphis Runners, and I was member number 12. <laughs> <laughs> That was that was running exploding. <laughs> when was wow. that? How long ago was that? That would have been early seventies, and then I from from there I um, well I I was still mediocre. I ran the longer road races and and of course set my goal on the marathon because I wanted to win the Olympic marathon like. Every other beginning runner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, 
intervened. I kept moving up to longer distances. The first time I heard of ultras, I said, that is just stupid. And I'll never do that. Because, I mean, was there a lot of ultras at the time? Because I know in the UK there was quite a tradition of things like the London to Brighton race. But um, is there somewhere in the States? There were were very few. Uh, That's why I started directing ultras. When I, after I decided to run one, I looked and the closest one to me was 800 miles away. <laughs> what was it? Like, what was it? What was the one that was 800 miles away? I, I can either go to uh, Miami, Florida or New York City. Wow. And it just wasn't, wasn't within reason. So I started the strolling gym and the 40 miler that we have still have. This is the 41st year coming up. And, and why, I thought, why the strolling gym? What what what's the name um, mean? Strolling gym was a was a famous ho- Tennessee walking horse, and this is Tennessee walking horse country. So, thinking of ways to generate local support for having the event, I named it after a known local figure and a person, a horse, and that was the world champion walking horse and then strolling gym is kind of stuck it sounds like a perfect name for a ultra marathon it does it does sound it sounds as though you like focus group that or something in order to get how many how many how many participants you have in that first race we had uh 21 i think and 19 finished oh wow and i mean that's double the size of the running club so that's pretty good there were, there were three people who had never run an ultra before that ran that race. So even though the, you had a guy who'd run 150K, he was was holding court as the reigning expert on how, <laughs> how to do this. And, and what was the thinking at the time? Did people just see it as a longer run than a marathon? Because ultras now kind of held in such esteem almost or did, did people take it in their stride mostly the people who ran ultras were really competitive it uh it, it was a very different world back in the early days of the strolling gym if you ran seven hours you were in great danger of being dead last and if you finish in seven hours now you're in the top third so there, you didn't see a lot of older runners because the time limits were just fierce. Oh, so the cutoffs, um, and was that just because the race organizers um, wanted to go home, or was it because there wasn't really the demand for those longer cutoffs? There wasn't cut-offs? really a demand for longer cutoffs. Everybody pretty much that went up was, was serious. In my, in my quest to keep going longer, I would think at each distance, well, I'm doing the best at the end, and I, I, you know, my strengths are that I can can hang on and take a lot of abuse and keep going. But the problem is, every time you move up, the collection of people, the population that moves up too, they all have the same characteristics. <laughs> same back in the back. And so, were you also doing quite a lot of ultra racing yourself then, while you were organizing in, in those early years? Yes. Or trying to. I was, I was, had a few mediocre performances that I felt good about. And, and, uh, 
did the best I could, but obviously, you know, I was better off not to be that good because otherwise I wouldn't have gotten so focused and interested in organizing the events instead. So there is hope for us yet. Actually, our lack of ability could lead to something positive. I just, I, I want to understand your definition of mediocre here, because I, because no, if you knew what this podcast was like. Your mediocre is probably our world class. So can you kind of give us an indication of what mediocre means? My, uh, the, the best performances I had, uh, say, a regular running, I had a 119 half marathon, which I thought was, that was right at the top of, that was really performing the best I could. Of course, at the time, you think it's a stepping stone and you're going to do better. And by the time you realize that, that no, you're not ever going to do even that good again. <laughs> then in ultras, I, I had a 74-mile 12-hour, which I thought was it's credible. It's not good. I, I think that's pretty good. I'd be happy with that. Yeah. Over, <laughs> over what terrain? Uh, that was on a track. Right. And, and so how did, um, how did your – your love of putting on something like the strolling gym turn in to the Bucky Marathons? Uh, you just, you see races that you would like to have. The Barkley itself was uh, me and uh, Raw Dog, to put it in the improper English that's fitting for someone from Tennessee. We had backpacked and camped out at uh, Frozen Head for years. And we always saw these trails going around the boundary that just looked insane. The contour lines looked like shading on the map. They were so close together. So we talked about it and said, you know, one day when we don't take all these people who are not enthusiastic about doing that kind of hiking, we need to go out there and and hike that loop just to see if it can be done. And we did it as a two-day backpacking trip. You had to go on that trail. You had to get special permission from the rangers. When we started going out there, it wasn't a park. But by the time we did this, they'd made it a park. So we convinced them that even though they were sure we couldn't make it, that we would get ourselves back. And they wouldn't have to go retrieve us like everyone else that had ever tried that trail. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, was, they were that, pretty <laughs> was that because of just how steep it was or is it something about the terrain as well that, that makes it difficult to move through it yeah it's well the trail hadn't been maintained since the 1930s <laughs> so <laughs> you you either went over under around or through all the obstacles and the trail itself was on hillsides so steep that if you got off the trail you couldn't go you would just go sliding off down the hill there were parts that were washed out there were deadfalls that you had to climb through from end to end where they came down lengthwise in the trail <clears throat> or you'd come to places where there were a pile of tree trunks and i know during the first barkley we came to one of those me and gary buffington and we tried and tried. It was on such a steep hillside, you couldn't get off the trail and go. And we were trying to figure out ways to get across, and we couldn't think of anything. And then I had an idea, and I I said, here, give me your pack for a second. He gave me his pack, and I threw it over the top of the trees and under the trail on the other side. And then I took my pack and threw it over there, too. 
said, now we have to get there. <laughs> <laughs> and you've never seen those packs again. <laughs> <laughs> we got across. It's, you know, you just need to raise the stakes a little bit. <laughs> I'm understand. I'm starting to understand a mentality here. <laughs> <laughs> and so, how so, how long did it take you compared to what you were expecting? Uh, oh, I knew it would be bad. When me and Carl backpacked it, it took uh, we took ten hours to cover the first seven miles, <laughs> and it was just. It was brutal. There were play. There was one place where a landslide had taken the trail out entirely, and you had to figure out how to get across the loose rubble. And and uh, there were places where the vegetation was so high because we didn't, we weren't smart enough to do it in the winter that you couldn't see the trail at all. But you had the reassurance that if you got off the trail, you would fall down the side of the mountain. God. <laughs> And, and then the it, second day went, went a lot quicker. We got back before noon on the second day. So, but that was, that was, you know, we spent a lot of time studying the map and trying to uh, follow a trail that hadn't been maintenanced in more than 50 years. What did it used to be used for? They, uh, they had fire trails. It was a it was a state forest, and they had trails for the fire people to use. But most of the trails had been built out there during the the Great Depression, and they had this thing called the CCC, and they just took young men that had no work, and they they did all kinds of public projects, and they built trails through this forest. And apparently this trail that we used for the Barkley was designed by someone who sat at a desk and had never, ever (laughs) (laughs) actually been on foot in the mountains because it follows straight lines where the the, the human boundaries are with utter disregard for the terrain. (laughs) It makes for some fun going. So they went out and actually kind of created a trail just following a bit of pen on a map four uh four people died building that trail they have a monument to them at the at the trailhead i mean that sounds a little bit how the british decided about which countries were going to be (laughs) created in the middle east and look what happened there it was exactly (laughs) i was thinking i say it must be a british (laughs) diplomat that created this total total disregard for reality just (laughs) So four people so, have, have died in the so far in the Barkley Marathon saga, really. Yeah, well, just building the trail. <laughs> so all that day while we were backpacking it, I just kept thinking, this this is a trail race. This would make a race that would not people. Well, I can't I can't use that phrase. Can I? What liberties Whatever do I you have want. with language? Effing blind, one, absolutely. That will knock people's dick in the dirt. <laughs> I've not heard that phrase. No, I've not heard that phrase. Like <laughs> what I love about that is that it just this looks so. This is be so hard for someone else to do later at some point. Yeah, really. Yeah, so we, mm. so we, you know, went over it and proved it could be done. And and then when we got back the next day, told the rangers they were over it, and they were astounded. And said, and I have friends 
who would really like to come here and play. <laughs> really? And they just they thought, no, there is no one else in the world who would want to do that. But that obviously there are. There's lots of people all over the world that want to do it. But it's it's different than you think. At, at that time, was it a little? But at, at that time, was it a little bit of you thinking, "Oh, mate, no one's going to believe that I did that, or what is possible, what it was like, unless unless they do it." Or was it more of a, "Oh man, that was so hard. Someone else has got to pay for this." <laughs> I think it was so hard. I thought the certain type of person would enjoy it. The the early years, you stumbled. You had a lot of people that stumbled on it because they didn't really know what they were getting into, and they didn't have fun. But for the right people, it's glorious fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so like the first year, and, what did you the first year, that you, the first year look like then, in terms of like numbers, in terms of like the the kind of people that were there? We had. Um, I want to say like 13 starters. And as I climbed up the first mountain before sun up, and I got up high on the first mountain, and I look and I can see three flashlights on the wrong mountain. <laughs> slowly up, and you know, well, there's only 10 of us left. I really think because we didn't have the books in place yet, that probably me and Buffington were the only ones who actually did a complete loop correctly that year. It's possible that someone. Oh, so you were racing it yourself? Oh yeah, I that was I was younger then. I thought I could actually do it. I did the first I think five years I tried it, and I didn't really fully appreciate the level of of commitment that it takes and I never could get beyond one lap because when you direct it you just you you have to do the Barkley the focus has to be total yeah and absolutely you can't be going to bed the night before the race totally exhausted from all the stuff you did to get it started and, and was it five laps in the first year was that the intention that people had no we just told them three because you, you you use the carrot, but you, you, the carrot has to be in sight. And it doesn't take very long out there for, for five to not seem reasonable at all. Yeah. So we put it at three, and it took three years before anyone did that. And then we put it at five, and it was, I think, another 10 years, another seven or eight years. It was 1995, so I guess it was 10 years total before someone got the five laps. And, and, and had the intention was the intention of that to create something that you didn't think people could do, just to see how far people would go, or did you really want people to get that five as soon as you set we're, it? We're trying to put it right at the very edge of of what a human can do, and uh, the problem we had during those intervening years that the Americans got it in their head that it couldn't be done. Mm. So they would go out and they would get past the third lap, but then they would fail and they would say, well, it's impossible. David Horton was the first person that talked to Mark Williams when he finished. And the first thing he told him was, 
Now you've ruined it for everybody. (laughs) I used to come down here and try this, get as far as I could get and go home and say, well, I didn't finish, but it's impossible. And now that's gone. It is possible. And and at that time, was it an established race amongst the ultra community or was it seen as a bit of an oddity that, that, cause you, you mentioned how, you know, even in your, your racing, it was on a track for the ultra. I mean, was this quite unique in, in the terrain and, and the fact that the challenge isn't just about one seven foot of another, it's actually navigation, conquering your terrain um, and, and lack of sleep as well. Yeah, it's, it's a little different. I, I was a long-time backpacker. I did lots of adventures in the woods. And to me, a trail run where that you get on a trail that's actually a path, they, they mislabel a lot of it. It's path running, not trail running. And where mm-hmm. they have to have woodsman skills, you have to be able to see you have to see a trail where that maybe not all every rock and stick and leaf has been brushed off of it. And to use your map and know where you are and look at the terrain, it doesn't, except at night or in the fog, you don't really have to have a compass because the, the, the terrain is very dramatic. And you can look at mm. the contour lines on the map and say, this is that, and this is that. And I am right around here. And I'm, I'm within 10 feet of the trail. I just have to find it. Because the, because um, having watched the documentary and having heard people describe how you have to kind of write down the route itself, is it the same route each time then? No, it changes slightly every year, so that it's a little bit, so that everyone has some times when they have to stop and think. The biggest thing is to keep track of where you are. And that's that's very different. Mm. There's not any point at which you can say, well, I'm just going to I'm in a good rhythm. I'm just going to go because if you get in a really good rhythm and just go the next time you check, you won't know where the hell you are. And, and how do you decide that? Are you looking at actually if there are paths or are you just thinking about the, the approximate distance you want people to go in a lap and then putting points on on the map and somehow getting there yourself to leave a book no there's all kinds of old trails out there there's the old um, the old trails that that were used by the forest service there's old logging roads there's uh, a number a lot of a lot of different stuff out there now lots of it is not in any current use but they there are trails and we and are you are you having to discover those yourself? You just you move to change the course from year to year. You might just move over and go up a different uh, go up a different ravine or up a different ridge line, and not make try to keep it around the same. This year's course is actually going to be a hair shorter than last year. But it should have more downhill, and uh, which will make it much easier. <laughs> oh, really? Don't, don't you say that every year? But <laughs> start and finish at the same point. So uh, <laughs> the down on the apple. It's going to be shorter and mostly downhill. 
You should well, work for Edinburgh at, Marathon. <laughs> downhill, the net each lap is, of course, always zero because you start and finish at the same point. But it'll. Uh, we're going some really places. I'm excited to see the runners get because I know all these different places in the park. When we put out the book over the years, we don't use always the Barkley Trail itself. We use lots of different trails, and we'll sit down and figure out different ways to go through the park and look at different stuff over the years to, uh, you know, just know all these different trails and places that you can go for potential future use. And and do you think the people like um, John, who's you know did it three times? finished in on his third attempt are they getting to know the trails themselves do you think when they come to start the next year they can look at the map and have a sense of where they are where they're going or is the terrain so different and the route so different that actually it's it's a fresh start every year Uh, well it's all in the same park so you have a limited number of mountains and as you get we always tell people that you know, between the years, you're only allowed to train on the the open trails in the park, which are more reasonable human trails. It's a it's perfectly adequate to get you ready for the race because you learn how all the mountains lay and you get a mental map of the area. Mm. Then during the race, even though you may not be on something you've been on before, you know where you are. Mm. And John grew up in that area, so he knew the he knew the area pretty well. He just over the three years, he changed his mental concept of what he could take, pushed the pain barrier back. And, uh, you know, the first year he quit, he stopped at the third lap, and his crew was his dad, he, you, which was probably not the best crew because his dad was afraid he was going to die. <laughs> and, uh, he came and said, John has to quit. He has a wife and a child. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas his friends would be like, "Go on, continue, get on, doesn't matter, leave them behind." <laughs> I'll take well, care. Death I'll or adopt. glory. <laughs> uh, I don't know about the in England. In America, a lot of people don't realize you can get really, really tired, and it's not going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> you can even do something so hard that there's a little discomfort involved, and you're not going to die. You're, you're pretty, pretty durable. And then the second year, he just he didn't have it down pat, but he didn't uh, stop. He got onto the fifth loop, but his problem was he he went about a hundred yards up the trail and then laid down in the leaves beside the trail and slept for several hours, and that didn't leave him. <laughs> he was, I think, I like your word you used at the start. He was knackered. Not yet. Maybe. <laughs> That word is very, very commonly used in relation to Barkley Mouth, that's for sure. Just, into, just, I just want to find out a little bit about like the evolution of some of the traditions. Um, you know, when did, when, did, like, when did the books come in? When did, when did you start like, laying in all these other elements? Did they come about like, organically because like, something happened? Um, or, you know, how, how, did, how did each of, the, each of the things that it's now famous for um, sort of evolve? 
Well, we always lit a cigarette to start the race because that seems like the way all the great races would start. <laughs> it's very French, I think. It's very French to, have a, to, to lighten a cigarette on a, on a race. See, I always have a cigarette after I've finished, if anything, but uh, that's slightly different. Slightly different. <laughs> You'd be surprised, actually, several of the, a number of the finishers, especially in the early years, were people who did smoke. But not much during the race. It, uh, the books came in the third year because the first two years you realize not everyone is really adept with a map. And people were coming clearly hadn't done the right course. And we were trying to think of how do you keep them on course or assure yourself that they went there. It... Uh, not so much that it was a competitive advantage because people that got lost like that, they weren't they weren't winning. They just were thinking they had done the loop when they hadn't. And we came up with the Ed Furtaw, Frozen Ed, came up with the idea of the paperback books. And then after we'd done the books a couple of years, it dawned on us, rather than having them get a, just any page out of the book, have them get the page off their bid number. And you get a new bib every lap so you can get new pages out of the book. And that way, if someone gets lost or doesn't turn up or we want to, if we're concerned about them, you can go to the book at the halfway point and see if that page is gone yet. Mm. It's not, you know, they're in the first half and then you bisect that and go to the one that's halfway through the first half and determine you can quickly narrow it down to where the person last was on course now whether that they're still you know down or lost in that section or they're 30 miles away in another county <laughs> you don't really know <laughs> but the last time they were on course you know where it was they're bringing back pages of books that you haven't laid out <laughs> <laughs> and um do you collect the books each year then at the end I was broken up. I didn't understand the question. Oh, sorry. So do you do you leave the books out there for kind of memory's sake, or do you bring them back each year? No. Uh, Hiram, the librarian, goes out and collects all the books after the race is over. And, uh, and how do you decide which books? Because I know a lot of them are quite funny in their their <laughs> meaning. Of, you know, they, they give it a little clue to uh, the, the runner's but how do you choose each time and then book titles we have a box of books or actually I have a number of boxes of books people and you're welcome to also when they see a good title for the Barclay they send it to me <laughs> and I take all the books out and I study them and I think about that year's theme and that year's course and what will be going on in the runner's mind. You know, the time that it's going to start. So the time during the lap will be when, when they get there. And then you select books that fall in line with the theme and where they are on the course so that the ones that are really paying attention or still have a few neurons firing will say, he's just fucking with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether I'd, I'd find it entertaining in that state of mind and it would actually 
give me positive feelings or whether it was just turned to hatred. It's hard to know, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know for sure, but I've been told that that there are bad things said about me out on the course. But everyone's so grateful when they get back to camp. They're just so happy that they're alive and, and there's pavement and all this and a bathroom and all this stuff. That they're really positive then, until you tell you know tell them how long they have till they need to go back out. <laughs> so so what what about what about the entry criteria? Because it's of course it's you know shrouded in in mystery. Uh, it, did that come about simply because it was becoming more popular, or was that how how did that evolve? We always from the very beginning ask them to write an essay and. We're, we're, I'm looking at things on how the entry is structured now because it all started during the days of, of mail. Yeah. You know, mm. the physical mail so that stuff would be collected. And on the day that where we take entries now uh, over email and they all come in, boom, boom, boom. I would, I would pull out the big pile of stuff people had been sending in. So that was kind of a drop dead date. If you didn't get it in by then, it wasn't going to get looked at. And then somewhere along the way, we we came up with the written exam, which I greatly enjoy. <laughs> they, there, there's a lot of really smart, really creative people that, that run and do well at the Barclay. I think it's well known. The first, the first seven finishers all had PhDs. Really, and it's it's still at about eighty or ninety percent of the finishers. John Kelly, I think John has got a PhD. Yeah, he's a very clever chap. Um, but now Jared Jared Campbell is is a mere engineer, so I think think he has like a. <laughs> You're not as a, not as elitist as it used to be then. <laughs> and so, are you? Are you thinking about changing again how how people so – I'm thinking about having them send the essay later and do the uh, do the written exam first because some people the, – the written exam consists of like the, – the number one question this year is were the Eddie Karens plants or animals? I, you might not be familiar with the Eddie Karens. No. Um, they, do they face the Decepticons? <laughs> it's, a form, it's a form of life that, that came before plants and animals differentiated. Ah, okay. And so there's a, a, lot of, a lot of people don't know, but back at the beginning when life first started, there weren't just plants and animals. There were all kinds of different experiments. Plants and animals have basically won out. Yeah. My favorite were the giant cells. There were single one-celled animals that were, were like four feet across. Of course, when when the the life form came up with the idea of multicellular organisms, they kicked the shit out of the was were the giant cells. So they're Are gone. you sure you haven't just watched the film The Big Blob, whatever it's called? The uh, <laughs> I <remember> the horror <laughs> film. <laughs> that wasn't a documentary. That was. <laughs> So with the exam, do you? I, I assume this isn't you. 
you go online, you've got half an hour to finish. It's just something you send out that people then have. Yeah, it's 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 part of the entry form is the written exam, and there's usually six or seven questions, a couple of extra credit questions. The uh, second extra credit credit question this year was whether or not it's possible in cooking to have too much bacon, too much butter, or too much chocolate. <laughs> the consensus opinion of a few people have said you can go overboard on butter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree with that. The rest. <laughs> but chocolate and bacon, no. If you can fit more in, it's better. <laughs> <laughs> and so are you looking, I mean, are these mainly for your entertainment? Are you... <laughs> Are you looking now? Now that you know that you know that it is really well, there very. Will be, there will be a math question and a history question and a biology question and astronomy question, a, uh, a physical science question, and then of course the extra credit questions. <laughs> and they're they're all basically unanswered problems. I suppose it's yeah. understanding what the what the purpose of it is. The purpose of it to make, I mean, what's the what what's success for for the person? Is it to make you laugh? Is it to make you think something it's, differently? What is what was the what? It's for them to have a creative um, approach to to answering these questions. One, uh, one of the, the best exam I've gotten this year is from a Frenchman. And every, the answer to every question eventually traced back to the number 66. <laughs> and you would have to see the convoluted ways. And, uh, you know, every, you have the ones that they just go and they, they Google it. And hit the Wikipedia entry and then write back and say, no one knows. No one knows. Never been answered. Hadn't been solved. Those aren't answers. <laughs> so you're really looking for personality in the... In tell the, you what, this is, this is, this is Oxbridge. This is like an Oxbridge interview. I don't know. Did you, did you ever apply to Oxford or Cambridge, David? <laughs> Because this is this is like an Oxbridge interview. It's asking you a question that you, there's no answer to. The, those are the best ones because you can answer questions that have no answer, but your mind has to be able to. You have to, yeah. Open up and think. Do you send back results? <laughs> <laughs> you mark them. Can you put? Is it on? Your, is it on someone's fridge at home? <laughs> I haven't ever sent them back. But I, you know, I tell them when they've done well, you know, one guy solved the math problem this year and it uh, is really, it's, he did an impressive job because he just looked at it a little different than everyone else. It's a logical, easy solution. If you just tilt the way you look at it. I mean, give it, give Those it how people do well at the Barclay because in the Barclay you are presented with multiple problems that aren't solvable. I mean, give, given the popularity, maybe the questions should start being what's the cure for cancer and um, you know, <laughs> questions along those lines because we could really use this force for good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the answer is the cure for cancer is death. <laughs> Sadly, so you um you mentioned there you hinted at about how it's the problem 
solving ability is the people that enter that do well, who actually finish it. I mean, what would you say are the main problems that they have to try and overcome? And, and what approaches have you seen working best for that? Well, figuring, of course, figuring out what you need to carry, how to, how to deal with the, the terrain. A lot of them, the problems you can't predict because they come up when someone does get into a rhythm. And they run for a while and realize, oh, shit, I am, <laughs> I am no longer on the trail, which it's pretty easy to follow it while you're on it. But you can get off of it and be holy hell to find it. You, you know, I'm on this slope and mm. the trail goes across and I know on the map about how far it is from the top between the top and the bottom. But I can't see the top and the bottom from here. So, you know, do I go up? Do I go down? We had a, uh, one of the, one of the, when uh, Gary Robbins, mm. no, not Gary, one of the guys that got on the fifth loop and didn't finish, mm. he came to a place where you go up a uh, long hill and you've got it there's a a certain spot at the top that you cross over and go down and it's on a long ridge line which if you don't come up and hit that spot exactly you're either to the right of it or to the left of it well the answer is to always go left because if you go down the ridge line a little ways to the left past where the, the crossover is you come to a distinctive mark that you can't miss. If you go to the right and you don't, and, you, and it's the wrong direction, you'll go forever. So no matter where you think you are, you turn left because you'll only go a short distance before you turn around and know it's in front of you. And, uh, you know, it just it didn't dawn on him to think about this uh, this landmark that's not even on the course and can't be seen from the course to think that tells you which way to go. Yeah. And you're, you know, they, um, that you see people in the early laughs, they know when you get off, what you do is you stop, you sit down, you think about the problem and how to best get back on track. If you start trying to beat it with, you know, speed, if speed is your mm. go-to for solving problems, going faster when you're lost is not, <laughs> it just mm. gets you lost quicker. Because what, what do you think realistically is the slowest someone could probably be and finish five laps? Like if we're talking about, let's say let's reduce it to like a marathon time or a hundred mile what kind of times are we talking where you think realistically even if you're amazing at navigation you practically know the route off by heart um, and you get it all right unless you can do this kind of speed you're just going to be timed out it's the time limits that that kind of define that for you. You get a look at the, the the smart ones already know this. If you look at it in terms of your lap times, the first lap time, a great time is around eight hours, between mm -hmm. eight and nine. If you go under eight, you progressively get into the point where the additional work, because as the slope gets steeper, it it begins to take 
proportionately more of a drain on your your physical resources than doing the same amount of climate at a more gradual grade. So you can't if you go too fast, you will burn yourself up. But if you go too slow, once you get over nine hours, you start thinking, okay, if if it's a typical Barkley and you got day loop, night loop, day loop, night loop. If you do go over nine hours, you've got less than three hours of cushion. You know the night loop is going to be slower, mm. a lot slower. So you're going to come out at the end of loop two with almost all your cushion gone, which means in loop three during the day, you have to speed up and push hard to build enough of a cushion back up to get through that deadly fourth lap, which is at night again. And those are the ones that, that a lot of people, even the really good runners, it's going to be 15 hours, 16 hours, maybe 17. Mm-hmm. Because everything is coming together on you at once. The, the pure physical fatigue, the lack of sleep, the, uh, the brutality of the course just continue to go up and down those, those grades and the clock. So the smart runners, the clock is on them all the time. They're, they never have but a tiny cushion. And that, that pressure wears away at you mentally because when you know that, you get off course, you lose 15 minutes. You didn't have mm. 15 minutes. You know, every mistake is crucial. It's a... Uh, it's it, they have the people who succeed at it. It's really an amazing thing to see the the physical and mental challenge that they've had to overcome. So effectively, for the people that finished, you're saying that they they've effectively done the, the perfect race each time. That there's there's so, such a little margin for error. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to have pretty close to a perfect race. And however it works out, by the time you get into lap five. Every time they, they go on to lap five, they have very little time left before the cutoff. Mm-hmm. So all the way around, there's pressure. You can't screw up. You can't screw up. But your mind is so tired. People get lost on something they've done four times successfully and just and blow it the fifth time. In fact, Gary, Gary got lost, didn't he? That's why he, he, um... he got lost on a marked, cleared trail. <laughs> two miles from the finish it was the most tragic thing that he just he came out and you take a left and it's a straight shot into camp and it's easy and he turned right no oh. was, you think he'll be back um I you know will, will you let him back that's the <laughs> oh yeah yeah you always I would let him back it's it's like the people that do it, it eats at them. It's this unsolved problem. The, the Blake Woods, another Ph.D. nuclear physicist from Los Alamos, and he took him five tries. Because every time, you know, you're, you're reducing it, you figure out how to solve these problems, and you get on and dis- discover that there's more problems to come after that. And then you just sit back and think about how to train, how to prepare, how to, what to stock yourself with. We don't have the required gear like a, you would typically see in a race like that. Mm. It's, it's up to you. 
But now you've got to know that in the course of a single lap in, I, I don't know the corresponding temperatures in, in uh, centigrade, but it can be from zero to 80 mm. in Fahrenheit, which I know Z, 32 is zero in centigrade. So mm. and it's somewhere around 35 or 40, the minus 35 or minus 40, the two, the two systems meet. Because what's your view, now that it's, I mean, it's so big now, the, it, Barclays is so well known, so many people apply. And if, you, if you're essentially saying that people really need years and years to get to understand themselves and the course, to, to be able to even, you know, to, get, to have a chance of understanding it well enough to get, get that perfect run, does that mean you're, you're really focused on wanting to get people back to give shot or is there more pressure now on actually rotating who does the race each year and, and, and so could you change the 40 and, and if not you know what what are you trying to prioritize there it's a mixture people who uh people who i try to give people a chance to achieve their best which means that most of the time they're going to get in more than once it makes it harder to get more people in mm when you'd like to run through as many as you can. But you, I mean, the object is to let them try to see what they're capable of doing. We know that not everyone who enters is capable of doing it, but that's on purpose. We have, we've looked at the trail itself. We keep careful track each year to make sure that when, when we're done, we haven't left a mark. We haven't made a trail. I mean, a, a good woodsman can tell where the trail was, but they can tell where the trail was before, even though it was 50 years old. Mm. Um, the campground, the, the facility that supports the race, where that we stay and have headquarters, we can put about 40 runners in there. The 40 runners that are capable of five loops is more people than we can put on the course. Mm. So we take a certain number of the elite has a real chance at, at five loops people and then draw out a certain number of the people who, you, you know, they're never going to do five loops, but that's fine because the, that our, our footprint is determined by the number of loops we do, not the number of people we have. So we mm. maximize our facility and by getting in the most people we can, by splitting them between the ones that can and the ones that are just going to seek their own personal limit. Because you famously um, can give the number one bib, the number one bib to who you think is the least likely applicant to be able to succeed <laughs> even in one lap. So we've got a question from John Howard. Is like, how do you actually decide who gets that, and and how often are you right as well? <laughs> We have a pretty good track record. Now, we've had, uh, had the uh, human sacrifice who have gone on. There is one human sacrifice that ultimately got five loops. But you, you look at, yeah. Nick In the first Holland, year. Nick Holland was a human sacrifice his first year. Wow. And, and how did he do in that first year? Uh, he did well for a human sacrifice. He was a human sacrifice because a spot came open like 36 hours before the start. 
<laughs> and he Arizona and had no idea, but he was the next one on the wait list. So I just contacted him. I said, if you can be here in 36 hours. Well, he was in school, had classes and I think tests and just, <laughs> you know, cleared everything out. Uh, somehow got managed to get his corporeal body to frozen head before the start. And he did remarkably well. He's a good athlete, but I mean, that's, that's a setback. Other ones that you look at for human sacrifice might be like Michael Wardian. Oh yeah. For some, he's one of the best runners in the world. Mm. He's sub three hour 50 K runner. He's, and you look at his running career, and he's been able to solve every problem that he faces by going faster. Oh, fantastic. So when, um, when Mike – and this actually leads in to the, the, the question related to it. So when Mike found out he was the sacrifice, I mean, how, what, does, what impact does that have on the people when they realize, oh, wow – he really thinks I'm going to be terrible. You know, up until the damn movie came up, no one ever knew. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, so they were ignorant. They just thought, hey, number one, my favorite number. Yeah, yeah they, they must think I am in with a shot. <laughs> so Mike Wardian would have thought, I'm such a good runner. He's given me number one. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, uh, we, do, we do lots of stuff the runners don't know. <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, but now, you know, when you hand out the bibs and you get to number one, the person gets it and and no one shows up there. You you don't succeed at athletics without an ego. Yeah. And to get that number one. It's like, oh, no, not <laughs> me. <laughs> it's like when you find out the girl's kissing you for a dare. You're like, what? <laughs> 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 or, or your friends have paid her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're good runners. I always felt bad for poor Tim Hardy because he got singled out with his number one bib in the movie. So I think he's the only ultra runner in America that hasn't seen it because he can't stand to watch it. He's already heard. <laughs> he knows oh, no. what's up. And is it, has, he's has, a really good runner who's finished a lot of really hard races, but I looked at his history and his go-to is he's tough. He just simply wills mm. it out and goes on no matter what. And having a even good runners, the more one-dimensional their approach, mm. the, the more trouble they're going to be in. You have to be very adaptable. You might but, pick just because they looked up all the answers on their written exam on Wikipedia and wrote, it's an impossible question. So is that is that really what the, the philosophy then that sits behind like this race and, and your other races? We're going to ask you about the other races later, but is it, it's kind of about taking, taking it. The, so it's not just about speed. It's not just about running, but actually it's about the, the, the sort of the whole being about that you know, problem solving uh, yeah, the, the whole athlete. Yeah, the ability to persevere, the ability to overcome the demons in your head, the ability to solve problems, the ability to find your way, and the ability to to run, the willpower to run because the the way it lays out, you know, people look and they say it's sixty hours. And they say, I can do that because they picture in their mind, it's a 
very long, low-level effort. Mm. But it's not. If yeah, yeah, I'm sure you're in England. You've done fell running. You know a steep mm. slope. You don't have to go fast to redline. Yeah, yeah. And so you're going to redline on all those big climbs, and you're also going to lose time. So when you're looking at the watch, you know when you get to the top of a big climb, when your three million years of evolution says this is where you back off and recover, you can't. You have to push. You have to make time back. You have to go fast because you can, because you're going to hit something else slow again. So you're always, you know, you're looking at, you're in the cockpit and all your needles are right over there bumping up against the red area. And you say, how long can I keep them there? And are you finding with um, with the number one bib, are people now in their applications starting to almost angle? Yeah. For the number one bib, do you think people are almost telling fibs or trying to paint themselves as underdogs in the hope that yeah. that will they've got uh, more chance of getting that? I think it's like that. a wild card or some yeah some some kind of easier entry. Yeah, you have had since the very beginning since they knew it existed. People write and say, "I want to be the human sacrifice." That's the kiss of death. They write, "Beautiful, <laughs> they'll do." That's the kiss of death. Everyone out there is an accomplished athlete. You know, it's it's like uh, it, it, when you run the, the finals of the 10,000 meters in the Olympics, somebody's going to drag him way behind everybody else. He doesn't suck. Mm, mm. <laughs> you know, he's really good. And with Because you mentioned that the, the Netflix has changed the fact that people now know number one. I mean, has what impact has that had on the race um, in terms of the applications but also in terms of I guess the pressures and potentially the spotlight for things your time health and safety all these other issues that might not have been there before the the we try to keep down spectators because they become an issue because the area is so confined and there's nothing to watch Mm. Because the race takes place out in the woods, that's unchanged. You're you're all alone out there with um, with your own head and your own ability, and uh, the number of serious applicants haven't hasn't changed at all. Now the number mm. of people who write me and say, I you know I've never I've never run a race, but I'm sure I can do this. <laughs> oh, some some of our listeners have got in touch then. <laughs> And since they have to know somebody who knows something to find out when to send in their application, other than just getting random stuff at random times, it doesn't it doesn't affect it. Then we added the Barkley Fall Classic, which has actually helped reduce it a lot because we can take close to 500 people in that and they run it. One, only about a third of them make the 50K. And if you can't do the 50K in that, you don't have any chance you could do a loop in the Barkley. And we want people that we get out there to have at least be able to do a loop. Mm. So, and of those people that do that, a lot of them will come to me and they say, well, was that as hard as a Barkley loop? You say, it's not even close. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to get an essay from me because (laughs) that's as hard as anything I ever want to do. 
Well, I think that people want a taste of it. There are maybe a few ignorant people that genuinely think, oh, I stand a chance of getting five. Um, but I think people just want to be associated and just actually to understand. Because even now, having seen the documentary, having interviewed Rhonda Marie, having interviewed John, having spoken to yourself, I still can't get my head around how it's so hard to do 20 miles in, in 12 hours. It just blows my mind. And it, it has to be because these people are incredible. But I just don't understand how it can be like that. And um, and I think that's why people are most surprised. And they think, well, it just can't be that hard, surely. <laughs> it, is, it, is a, it is a tremendous physical beating. It just, it just is. And having to focus all the time. You know, you... You, your brain uses a high percent of your of the fuel that you burn all the time, and when mm. you're having to think, it it it's just a drain because it goes on and on, and you can't. As as runners, there's nothing we love more than to get into that good rhythm and just go. I don't think that's just me. I think that's <clears throat> you know all my the good performances I talked about. That's what marked them. I got early into a really good rhythm and it just lasted. Mm. And that's, that's when you run a good race. You can't get in a rhythm. It's death (laughs) on and on constantly thinking. (laughs) You've distilled, you've distilled the beauty of running there and what, what what a runner really loves. And you've taken that away for 60 hours. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's quite impressive. Have you, um, honestly, a question related to, um, and I think someone asked this question. Have you, uh, you know, as the, when the, uh, race became more popularized through the netflix documentary did you have any sort of famous ultra runners ready really, that, that trying to trying to blag their way into the race <laughs> and yeah you know, who's, well, who's the who's the most f- famous person you've told to uh, politely go away oh uh, no if you're really really good we got some got some really big name people this year early on when it was starting to get a reputation we got some of the really fast mountain trail runners Mm. And I think that the word passed among them that I, one of them put it, he said, you know, this is this is not for me. I like to be on a certain trail where I can just let loose and fly. Mm. <laughs> and to me, this is not running because it requires all this other stuff. I just want to let loose and fly. And when I need to turn, someone's there to say, turn. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, um, so they they spurned it for a long time and we we still get some really fast people Michael Wardian was there and we we never published the list of who's entered and that way we've had some really big name people show up fail catastrophically and go <laughs> with their pride and reputation intact because their, their name is never printed anywhere in association with the race and they're not going to tell anyone. <laughs> but do you, do you think now that the, the spotlight is so great on it? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be at least three or four, five, six, seven, eight articles every year from now on about it. Is, is that making that harder to be the case? Cause I'm, I, I think it would be hard not to know if someone like a Dean Carnassus or a Mo Farah or, you know, Killian Journey turned up. I, I think we'd find out about it within probably 20 hours or so. Yeah, well, they, they, 
for a, for a lot of them, it wouldn't appeal because they couldn't bring their media machine. We mm-hmm. do we do have media on site, but it's pretty limited how many we we can take. And and when you run the race, they're only going to see you every twelve hours anyway. Mm. And there's a you know a lot of uncertainty. We've we've got some pretty well-known names coming this year. I'll be interested to see how they do. I looked at their essays and I think that they'll do well. They've got the right <laughs> mindset. I'd love the idea of them bringing the media machine and then you hand them the, the one jersey. You know, it's just... Well, <laughs> can you just can you do one year where every jersey is number one, but you don't let anyone see? So they're That's all there. the book. That would be a problem at the books, though. Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. First one there... That's it. The biggest thing we ever thought about doing, because everyone gets an odd number every year. And now that the computer is that we can do it, it used to be you had to throw away half your bibs. Because every page has two numbers on it, an even number on one side and an odd number on the other side. So in keeping with it being the Barkley, we get all the odd numbered bib numbers. We thought one year we could get every bib number and then put them out and match them up, and you've got a one and a two. And the first one to book one gets to go on. Oh, yeah. I think that's great. <laughs> that's great, isn't it? That's a really yeah, good. You could do that. You could, the thing is, well, you could double that down. And, and have, that, have 80 people start, but at, at book one, a mile and a half in, it's going to be cut to 40. <laughs> But not not just the first forty, the first forty to the first one to each page. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, it's not like you're gonna. You've got enough people who want to do the race that you could just do an alternative one. Try it out would, as a, almost a charity one. <laughs> and that would be amazing. We actually done it, but it's just to think about what it would be like. You know, the people going up that first mountain would they be hauling ass? How many people would fry their whole race just to get to continue past the first book? Well, no, no, no. What you do is you tell them that, but you only give out odd numbers, so they think they think they're running it. <laughs> uh, there's no fool in this group. They, uh, That's why we're not there. <laughs> we talk about the 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 challenge being from having to do everything. The other part of the challenge is the uncertainty yeah i've been in athletics and coaching and in different sports for a long time and the hardest thing for an athlete to deal with is uncertainty and ultra runners especially these runners they're planners you know you sit down and you go over the course in fine detail you go over all your your plans for every little bit of it they don't know the starting time or the course until the day the course the day before the race and the starting time an hour before it happens. And you're having to plan in with these time constraints. You know, if I'm going to get a sleep break, if I'm going to try to put in a sleep break, where will it be? Well, if you're going to sleep at all, it's got to be during the dark. You can't afford to sleep any of the daylight hours. Mm. But you don't know when the race starts. You don't know where in the race it'll be dark. Mm. So the race plans have to be concocted on the fly. I mean, no matter no matter how much you prepare in advance, everything just 
is dumped on you right at the end. I think this 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 sounds like it'll suit me perfectly because I don't plan anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah, just you talking. have that look in your lilac eyelashes. Ah, <laughs> you have screwed you over here, and Jay's going, "All right, mate, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool." <laughs> That would kill you. That would kill you. Planet, no, no planning. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, no running, no planning. Mine stopped. I don't know if you if you heard it or not. I said you sound like a number one. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and also I I hate I hate books. I mean, <laughs> if there was a movie, I could watch. If there were DVDs, yeah, I'd be in. I mean, this is why I haven't even tried to think about applying because it just—it's just so. I'd be so bad at it. Yeah, there's, there, I I there's only there's only one person in the do better community who I think would be suited to this. And when I say suited, I mean I think it would be hilarious to see them. And it, it, there's a there's a guy called Lee Stewart Evans who uh, he he decided to to walk a there's a a, a route in the UK called the Monarch's Way, which. By all accounts, it's one of those routes that. Um, well, it's the route that um, uh, uh, Charles I. Is it Charles I or Charles II? I can't remember. Um, escaped from uh, the um, from Cromwell's army and escaped back across to France. And it's the most circuitous route around the country. It's like six hundred and fifty miles long, and it's a route that no one has like walked on for for years and years. And he decided to do this this route, uh, and it turned out to be the worst. We're not just the worst uh, trail uh, run. Uh, we had to endure listening to him about it as well. So also, also the most boring, just awful, <laughs> awful thing. And I think it almost was preparation for something like this, in the sense that he mm. he had to come up with so he had to problem solve along the route. He he doesn't run really, so that's perfect. Um, uh, he just oh, no, had a run. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds. He, I, I think, think the issue so would be at the end of one lap, you'd want to send him out again after about five minutes, <laughs> yeah, just to, just to keep him you'd, quiet. You'd want to keep. And you'd him be quiet. like, I know it took you twenty two laps, to twenty two hours for this first lap, but get out there, mate. Yeah, you've you've changed the I've changed the rules for you. <laughs> you'd keep him on the course because uh... with with people on, what really struck me about the documentary that the, the the nightmare of it is that if you're halfway into the lap you know you're not going to make it back on time you don't know where you are you've still got to make it back and so that could be 58 hours in in theory you could still be 12 hours away from finding the, the finish i mean have you have you ever had any genuine worries for people out there and, and how do you really decide when's the time to to get nervous Ah, uh, not too much. People that have slowed down because it's five laps, uh, you'll get reports from later runners that, you know, people that are on their second lap will come in and say they saw this first lap guy still in the first half of the first lap. So you get a report <laughs> on where he was. Every now and then we'll send a runner up to check one of the books that has easy access to determine where someone went. The most worried we ever got about anybody was Dan Baglione because that he disappeared. One, he's in his 70s and he didn't have a good heart. And he disappeared two mile after the two-mile checkpoint that year. And he had been gone. And that was on the first lap, so 30 hours in. Wow. <laughs> and yeah. he was... 
but he he had quite a tale to tell when he got done. He lost his lost his map. He um, went to change the batteries in his flashlight, and this is in the old days of the old flashlights, and dropped his bulb into a pile of rocks, and generally got lost and wandered all out through the mountain. He wasn't in, he was only in the park for two miles, <laughs> and the rest of his adventure. He was completely off the map. When you're problem solving, you're completely off the map because then you're totally screwed. And he eventually came upon some some guys that were out uh, four wheel driving and smoking pot and drinking beer, and <laughs> the next day, and they hauled him out of the mountains and took him around. And he stopped with they, but they all stopped and ate breakfast. And he didn't think about it when he got out of the mountains to call back to the park and say, "Yeah, you know, I've been gone for thirty hours." <laughs> but yeah. And so well, he, he was too stoned, wasn't he? <laughs> he up. We were starting the starting the process of having a search for him, and he said he saw all the excitement. He said, "Wow, what's going on?" So well, we're starting a search for you. <laughs> <laughs> and how far how far off course do you think he got in that time? Oh. He was probably within just a few miles of the park most of the time. Mm. In the end, he was only maybe seven or eight miles away. He was in a – he might have got as much as ten. He was in a different county. Mm. So – and had been off the map almost the whole time. But he he was – he was following basically the route instructions that he just got a mountain off. And he was on a mountain outside the park instead of a mountain inside the park. So just parallel parking, essentially. And then when he got to the end of that mountain, nothing was right, according to his map. <laughs> you know, it went when it should go uphill. And, but he... And then, of course, it was just... it was. It was pretty funny now. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got a question from David Miller about are there any conditions in which you'd cancel the event? Uh, <laughs> see, we've we've been through sub-zero temperatures. Mm-hmm. We've just temperatures in the eighties. We've had major floods. We've got now reroutes that you can take if the rivers are too flooded to cross. They add time, but and they're, you know, it's going to lower your chances of finishing. But if the rivers are flooded, you can take them. We had a forest fire, and they set up a fire line along one of the trails of the race, and but we just rerouted it during the race. Wow. <laughs> I mean, in a way, that, that might have been an easier year, because if you see fire, you don't get I, that way. I think it might have been an easier year that year, because, uh, you know, we, we had to use a little bit of road to make sure we didn't, you know, you don't put people in danger, so you couldn't get them on the same side of the highway as where the fire was. Mm. Then uh, last year... It was right at freezing and poured down rain for 
guess the first 30 hours, people were pretty in pretty rough shape. But maybe if, you know. And do you think that was. So we've had fist size hail. That was a great year. The guy that got caught, the guy left on the course, and it came a hailstorm with. You know, those giant, the giant hails, they talk about them, they're golf ball sized or, or marble sized and they're round. But when you get to the big ones, when they say like a baseball sized hail, it's not round anymore. It's like this big lumpy thing. It looks like your fist. Wow. Except ice and they come down and he'd been out there. I was totally miserable. It was in the early days. So we didn't have people staying to see what was going to happen. There was just one guy left and he'd mm. been out there for some time and it had rained all weekend. I was really miserable and cold and wet. I saw him coming back and I was so glad because it meant he'd quit. And then as he got closer, he's like, he's got big welts and bruises and cuts. You know, he looks like he's someone beating with a baseball bat. And what happened? We got up on one of the exposed mountaintops and a storm came through and was impounded him with fist sized hail. He had to quit because he was so beaten up. (laughs) But we didn't cancel the race. (laughs) I mean, it it sounds like from what you've said that even the least prepared people that do this are actually all pretty prepared in general anyway. You know, they're going to be safe in, um, you know, for hours by themselves just because they're, they're hardy and they've, they've prepped, they're prepped. You pick people that you know are going to self-extract. We have a hundred percent self-extraction. Even even the guy that fractured his kneecap. Oh, and, how far out? Ah, uh, well, he was on the he was on the zip line, so he went the rest of the way down that boulder field, then climbed Big Hell and went down Chimney Top and up Rough Ridge and down Rough Ridge. So he climbed. All the way, it came down one mountain and crossed two more and then ran into camp. And then he cried because he couldn't go on. Oh, wow. So he actually wanted to continue racing. Well, but he, you can't. Your, your kneecap is broken in half. Yeah. Wow. Most of laid down in the rocks and waited for someone to come retrieve him with a helicopter. But barkers are a different breed. <laughs> so if do it you- wasn't in your blood before you get there it gets in your blood because you have to live up to all these people that were there before yeah who and, and wants, you- wants to be the first guy that doesn't self-extract wow yes and, and um so do you did you find it in 2012 2012 when you had three winners in one year did you see that as a success or was that joyous uh you're always glad to see them finish. It was a good year. It was it was a fortunate year to have the uh, documentary because it, there's a lot of drama and storylines. But there's always a lot of drama and good storylines at the Barkley. Mm. And you, the weather was perfect. The conditions were just the best that they could possibly be, and we had three people who each. And for their own reason, we're just perfectly prepared. And so it counterbalances years with zeros. 
And do, do you think when you have one person doing well, it it helps with navigation, it helps with the spirits of the others, or was it just a coincidence? Um, if you have pe- people run together and it helps, and you just, you know, you have to be really cold-blooded about it. You run with someone, the partnership lasts until one of you is no longer beneficial to the other. And mm. then the strong runner is going to, has to leave the weak runner to die. Mm. And it, I feel like we need to get that full group of the elite type athletes because you send a bunch of them out there and all this shit happens. It's more likely that one of them will get through without, without being stopped. If you just have a couple of three of them out there, then all the inevitable things that happen will happen to them. Maybe that's almost a superstitious belief because (laughs) there's almost so many things that are going to go wrong that you need enough people to fire through that someone's going to get lucky. It's a winnowing process. So if everyone is winnowed immediately out, then it becomes much harder for the remaining guy to make it. Because there's still there's still all these things that can go wrong. Because um, have you, I mean, my tactic if I was to do it would be to find the person who'd done it the most before and just follow him the whole way around and, uh, and try not to piss him off too much. Uh, have you had any people who've actually gone beyond that and actually cheated or, you know, tr- really tried to play against the spirit of the race? Uh, we know it's happened. If, we know it's happened some, but um, by and large, the people who would do that aren't attracted to it. And the, the ones that are, it's not going to succeed. It, uh, cause you can't make it easy. And mm. there, there's, I mean, if you collect the books in order, there's not very often that there's a place where you could go between your books and intentionally go the wrong way and gain anything. Mm. The uh, the primary thing you ever once in a while you get someone that tries to go out there and and put up markers for the course. Yeah, I'd had that. The faster runners are going to take them down. So you and and uh, interesting because I, I don't think I'd notice if I was in my own little world someone else putting up the markers and actually I might be pleasantly pleased. <laughs> uh, it's usually been in terms of reflective stuff to find their way at night we, uh, we haven't encountered that in quite a while I think that it gets gets better and better as the years go by so are there any people out there then who you would who would be your dream entrant that haven't applied that if you could choose anyone that you'd say this is the person I'd either think is the best suited for it or the person who I'd love to just throw to the dragon, the dragon's den. <sighs> no, not really. I always, the one of the worst days of the year is the day that the entries come in because that there will be 150 or 200 people I'd really like to put out there. <laughs> I have to divide them into where they fit and what component, what component of the field, and then only take the amount that I can take. 
Mm. So we and we've um we've had a lot of questions. One uh, from Jack Goodwin is about what are your plans for the race ongoing? Because you know you're such a big character. It is basically the last show. Um, do you see? You know, are you going to be training someone up to take this on? Um, for the next 50 years or is this something that is your baby and you know you want to to have it for as long as you can and then then call an end to it um no i think i think i've got somebody in mind to take over all of the races as long as there's still people who want to run them and uh it'll it'll be an ideal person he just has to does, does, no, he it, does he know it yet? <laughs> he hasn't yet. He's, he's actually was at first really reluctant, but now he's beginning to to say, yeah, he could do that. You're, you're just trying to cultivate that sadistic streak in him that it hasn't quite... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he loves people too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we've, we've had to, uh, you know, reduce the kindness quotient a little <laughs> Ah, it's good. It's good so far. Good so far. Well, the thing is, we always knew it was going to be good, didn't we? Um, but I just love how candid he is. But in fact, see, so listen, we're not sure at what point we've cut this episode because we spoke to lads for so long. We we've definitely got to split it into two. So there are some some things he said that I don't know if he said them yet. Well, like, <laughs> thinking back in retrospect. There were a few questions He's I wish I'd He's definitely mentioned prodded. Barclay Marathons. So. Definitely mentioned Barclay. <laughs> but there's a few questions I wish I'd have asked that I don't think he'd have answered. But just two... In fact, from... Is there anything you think you've left out there from the interviews? I don't think so. I... I asked all the questions older, which really was about like motivation stuff. But I don't think we've covered that bit. If, if he's cut it off here, it'll be in the next bit. But I, don't, yeah. I, can't, I can't afterwards. Afterwards, I couldn't think of anything that I really wanted to ask. I think... Um, so, I mean, like, the thing is that you'll, you'll note so far, Lister, is that how, how much detail we're going into, which I was, I was never expecting to do. Uh, on this on this interview at all, which is like amazingly surprising. I mean, we do we we do kind of a good job of yeah you know, when we have time with people, going kind of deeper than a lot of um, mm. a lot of podcasts, uh, mainly because other podcasts have some semblance of time and professionalism and editing. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it, so far like the detail has been has been insane. Because there are there are two things that may not have happened yet, but which. <laughs> I just thought. God damn so it, this is either that. this is either a review or a yeah. preview. <laughs> but he he says there's there are still quite a few other secrets about Barclay, and we didn't say what. I don't think he'd have told us. But the fact that the number one number wasn't known as being a thing until the documentary. I don't so think the, we know that yet. We might not know that yet. Well, that's that is fast. If you don't know that yet. Does that blow your mind? Think how many runners wore the number one jersey, number one number, not knowing that they, in Laz's eyes, were ultimately the most useless one out there. Well, not most useless, the, the least, least suited. The least suited, yeah. yeah, that's it. But, um, yeah, that, so I love the fact that he's got all these other secrets, and I don't know if they're known secrets amongst runners who've run, 
or whether it's just something it wouldn't surprise you it's things that make him giggle that he does each year and like oh if they figure this out this is quite funny but dot 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 or he's not doing anything at all and he's just letting everyone fill in the gaps themselves like oh what is it he's done this year no he's not done anything not done anything at all but you you think he's done something that's enough yeah it's the whole it's Catherine ryan Catherine ryan Catherine yeah. Ryan. but um also when he said that and i think this is later as well when he says that the, the good thing about not announcing who races is that if someone doesn't want people to know they turned up and crashed and burn they can do that but we should have asked him who because they i think this I is think, all covered in the bit that we haven't done yet Possibly, possibly, but I'd love to know if there's some big names out there. You know, if Dean Carnass has done it, I'd imagine he'd want to have done it. He'd have he'd been he'd have been up for it. Mm, I'm not sure. I, it doesn't seem a Dean Carnass's race. I don't know. I think he 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 smells the snort. He he can smell a story. He knows what's going to be good. Um, good copy. So I think. He'd be tempted. I think he likes warmer races, doesn't he? He's like a lot of them. They like warmer races. That's true. That's true. Um, but there, I mean, he, he, he's mentioned Mike Wardian's done it. We, there's, there's so many other athletes you think would be interesting. Um, Scott Jurek, you know, has he ever been drawn in? He's done the Appalachian Trail, things like that. You'd have thought he'd be yeah, quite... Yeah, something like that. that. Yeah, mm. like... Um, that or um, uh, Carl Metzler. Yeah, and I think especially with if you're someone that good at running who's done nearly everything on your CV that you want to do, probably can be quite hard to motivate yourself to you know to, to actually find a new challenge you genuinely care about. And so something like Barclay could be ideal for them to actually get their juices flowing again and for them to to actually take them outside of their comfort zone. But I don't know if we'll ever know or if it's known amongst the community because that's the thing. There's probably all these different – it's like Tough Guy uh, with Mr. Mouse, first obstacle race. And James Appleton knows so much that we don't know because he's friends with Mr. Mouse and there's all these things that happen. And, and I'm back to him with Lass. It's the same thing where he's probably got his buddies that know pretty much everyone who's ever run and obviously everyone there knows who else was there. And I think as things progress, it will be harder and harder to keep this thing secret because there's so much of a media spotlight on the yeah. race now. I think every year from now on, people will be wanting to find out where people are, who's doing what, who's there. Um, but maybe we'll never know. No, no. Well, we're going to. Um, we're, we're not going to do a long outro this week because we've obviously got a huge amount of the episode left to to spoil for you um, but to listen to but if you if you did enjoy this episode we'll be putting out the next episode almost straight away um, and we we mentioned in the interview a few other episodes that are directly linked to it so Rhonda Marie uh, Rhonda Marie is she's done two episodes of us one of them is talking about doing Barkley as a near blind runner she's also got a fantastic episode where she talks about doing the uh, the Vol State unaided which just blows my mind still um who else have we got from uh, that links into this podcast john kelly john kelly winner last winner 
Yeah, yeah. Three, t- it was three times he's attempted it, and so did it on his. Was it a third? I think we we talk about him in the you know with this and everything about yeah what he had to go through, um, and then you, we you know, if you listen to that you hear it from his his perspective as well. And we we only spoke to him like a couple of weeks after he did it. Yeah, we we also we he also talked about Gary, who obviously was famously got lost on the last turning and then got back with 30 seconds over, although he'd gone the wrong way. But still, I think it was reported that he'd missed out by 30 seconds or something. So he talks about that. Um, yeah, really, really interesting episode as well. So there's quite a few out there if you wanted to um, wanted to do a little bit more research on Barclays or to find out more about what other people have talked about it. Um, but if you've liked this episode, please leave us a, a lovely review on iTunes. Please do subscribe. There's plenty of other episodes of ultra runners out there, uh, whacking run for races, people like Robbie Britton, who's 24 hour race, uh, Harvey, um, Harvey Sweet Lewis, Sweetland Lewis, yep. who, um, is in the 24 hour race team. He's won Badwater, Dean Carnassus, Camille Heron, hundred mile. In fact, we've got, Candice, um, Candice yeah, Burt. we got, we got, we, we really, uh, we, we said a while back, didn't we, that we didn't have a lot of um, uh, US runners, and actually, recently, really upped it in terms of representation of US runners and yeah, what they're doing in in the ultra world and everything. But it, and be warned, though, um, our lack of research, we're okay in the UK because we know the races, we know the regions. Um, some of the questions or some of the answers, I don't know where Maine is. I don't know where half <laughs> these places are. And so there are, there's probably some um, level of known or assumed knowledge in ultra running in the US that we just don't have. And uh, I don't think it's that apparent too often. But um, I, th- I think it's pretty apparent. It's pretty apparent. It's pretty. It's pretty easy. When you listen to the podcast for a while, it's pretty easy. When it's clear when we have no idea where what's happening, um, and we don't know what we're talking about, which is pretty much most of the podcast. Yes, how we like to roll. So <laughs> exactly. Today to get used to that. It was, we want it to be as much of a surprise for us as it is a surprise for you. Exactly. Well, it, the best way for our listener, if there's a listener who doesn't know anything to understand, is to pretend to pretend that we also don't know anything. It's just a construct that we go through to help you, listener. Yes, yes. We're that, if, we're that good for yeah, you. If You're you, welcome. We You're might welcome. seem ignorant. It is all an act. <laughs> but thanks for listening. We'll be, um, we've obviously got an, another episode coming up almost immediately. So uh, please subscribe and we will see you next time. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around, but that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Come back, yes, and give me one more try, cause a love like this should I never ever die. Come back. Fuck you, buddy.